Welcome to Then and Now, brought to you by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy. We are dedicated to studying change in order to make change, linking knowledge of the past to the quest for a better future. Every week, we interview thought leaders, historians, researchers, and policymakers about what happened then and what that means for us now. Welcome to Then and Now, a podcast sponsored by the Luskin Center for History and Policy at UCLA. My name is Maya Ferdman. I'm the program manager for the Luskin Center. The goal of the center is to bring the past into conversation with the present, and in doing so, to understand how we got where we are so that we can imagine alternative and better futures. Our guest this week is Sharon Dolovich, UCLA law professor and director of the UCLA Prison Law and Policy Program, and of the UCLA Law COVID-19 Behind Bars Data Project. Professor Dolovich is an expert on prison conditions and criminal punishment. Her work has examined the privatization of prisons, segregation of prisoners for their own protection, prison rape, legal ethics, and the protections against cruel and unusual punishment afforded by the Eighth Amendment, among many other issues. Welcome to you, Sharon. We're so happy to have you. Thank you. It's great to be with you. Wonderful. So as the COVID-19 pandemic continues to rage, California's historically overcrowded prisons are hit particularly hard. With many prisons still over capacity, inmates have little options for social distancing and in many cases lack proper health care. State prisons have seen numerous COVID outbreaks among inmates and staff with an infection rate at least seven times that of the general population and with at least 50 deaths so far. And to address this, Governor Newsom announced in July the release of as many as 8,000 prisoners, with a focus on those who are medically high risk. He's met some resistance from victim advocates and others, while others have pushed, uh, pushed him to expand the criteria for release. So obviously, you're very well positioned to speak to what's going on today. But before we do that, um, let's first go backwards uh, to understand how we got where we are. So California's prison system has been overcrowded for decades with numerous legal fights about how to address it. So can you say a little bit about how we got here in the first place? Yeah. So first thing to understand is that the California situation, which, as you say, is uh, several decades now of serious overcrowding in the prisons, is not unique in the country. Uh, You know, California's prison population started to rise considerably in the, let's say, mid to late 70s with the slope increasing in steepness in the 80s and then being practically a vertical line for some period in the 90s. And in that respect, California was no different than any other state. This was happening all over the country to a later, greater or lesser degree, um, but California was sort of right in the heartland. And um, there were a number of policy changes that jurisdictions were adopting that allowed more and more people to be incarcerated. So sentences were getting longer. Many states, including California, effectively suspended discretionary parole. So if you got a life with the possibility of parole sentence, you're pretty much doing natural life. Um, And uh, so there were were strategies that were adopted. And I'll say a bit about California's unique approach to three strikes as one of those in a second. But the thing to know is there there were a number of policies that were adopted at the legislative level that allowed prosecutors to increase the number of people in custody and to increase the length of time in custody. And if you do those two things, if you put more people inside and keep them there for longer, you will dramatically increase the prisoner population. Uh, there was also an enthusiasm you know, that was sort of known as the war on crime, which led mm-hmm. to more prosecutors and more police officers being put in place. And there's a school of thought that says, if you add more cops and more prosecutors, you will get more prisoners. So you put those two things together and you end up with a dramatic increase in the prisoner population. And that's what we saw nationwide. So in a lot of ways, California was right in the middle of the trend. In With respect to three strikes, California had it was sort of an outlier in a way that also uh, increase the prisoner population more than you saw in other states that had three strikes laws. Um, the idea of three strikes is you commit three crimes. Uh, you know, the idea is supposed to be three violent crimes, and then you get a life sentence. Uh, in California, uh, we did two things that made it so that this law caught a much broader uh, number of people than in other states. Uh, mm-hmm. The first was there was an idea that we would double your sentence at your second strike. So you didn't even have to get to three strikes to get an increased sentence. And your third strike could be any felony, whether or not it was it was a violent felony. 
And so at the height of, you know, the 1990s, probably about 7,000 people a year were being sent to California prisons for 25-year mandatory minimum sentences under the three strikes laws for nonviolent crimes. And why, why is that? Why did California go further? You know, you said they were following, California was following this national trend of the war on crime. Um, and the three strikes law was something um, across the country. Why did California go further with these two um, elements that you mentioned? This is actually a very kind of, it's a contingent story of the politics of the moment. Some mm. listeners may remember the terrible kidnapping and killing of a young girl named Polly Class. And this galvanized um, a movement. Uh, uh, so there, there was a ballot initiative to have a three strikes law. There was mobilization in the legislature for a three strikes law. There was a kind of arms race to make it stiffer and stiffer and stiffer uh, with, you know, with some people pointing out that the, that the changes that California was making as compared to other states were likely to lead to a lot of nonviolent people being sent away for a long time. But there was just a particular climate of politics in that moment that made it so that, I mean, I think it was, it was Polyclass's father ended up being one of the people who opposed the draconian nature of the California three strikes law, but I know he had, even he had no standing. Um, and, you know, there's a bigger kind of ideological uh, part, piece to this picture, which is this was a period of incredible uh, kind of um, virulent rhetoric around the commission of crime uh, be, they need to be tough on crime. They need to get, you know, tough on criminals, hard time in prison. These were some of the buzzwords that people were using. And it was in that kind of climate uh, in which politicians could pay a huge price at the ballot box if they um, were not, if they were thought to not be sufficiently tough on crime. And so there was this arms race among politicians and those politicians who maybe looked at some of the fallout from the policies that were being implemented at the time and thought, you know, this is actually counterproductive and it's going to create a lot of negative consequences for society as a whole. Let's try to pull back on some of these initiatives. Those uh, politicians ended up paying a price and they would lose their seats and they would, you know, be attacked by various uh, victims rights organizations and other organizations that were sympathetic to the tough on crime movement. And so you just had a climate where it became very difficult to have a reasoned conversation about what good policy is and, the uh, the result was that the prisoner population expanded considerably. And I should just point out that there's not a necessary link between an increased prisoner population and overcrowding um, because you could have just, you could have a lot more prisons. You could build more prisons. And during this period, states all over the country, you know, people all over the country were trying to build prisons to accommodate the rise in um, in the prisoner population in California was no different. The number of prisons in the California Department of Corrections system went from 12 in the mid-1970s to 33 uh, by the late 90s. And so we really built a lot of prisons. But the point was that the prisoner population was growing so fast that prison officials were discovering that they could not build their way out. And so even with the prison building um, movement, we still ended up with extremely overcrowded prisons and to the point that um, in the middle of the first decade of the 21st century, so the, I guess the middle aughts around 2006, the California prisons were operating at over 200% capacity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, when you have that kind of overcrowding, you have terrible pathologies, including, you know, uh, violence and uh, volatility and an inability to provide even basic services. So you have a lot of um, negative uh, effects on health and safety, the people inside not only people who live in the prisons, but also the people who work in the prisons. And that's where we were uh, when Governor Schwarzenegger uh, appeared on the scene in, I guess it was 2004. What's the arc of this tough on crime political rhetoric? When did that, is there a shift there or was it? um, Do you mean when it emerged or when it started to abate? Well, I, I mean, when did it start to abate? You're explaining that the prison population was growing exponentially to the point where uh, new prison construction just simply could not keep up. At what was there ever a realization among this rhetoric? Or you know, you said that the politicians who had realized that this was coming paid a price. When did that start to become a more common recognition that this was a problem? Yeah. So I think there was not one crisp moment when everything changed, but it was during the first few years of the 21st century that there was a shift. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, around in 2001, there was an article that was published by a conservative commentator in the National Review 
about the problem of sexual assault in prison, prison rape. And what the article said was, and this was a conservative publication, mind, it was calling out politicians for being unable to take a position against even this kind of absolute, um, you know, absolutely unacceptable uh, phenomenon. And he, he pointed out in the article how many people had been paying a political price and calling on the evangelical community to make this an issue. And there was actually an answer to that call. In 2003, there was a coalition of progressive uh, organizations and evangelical Christian organizations that came together to pass the Prison Rape Elimination Act in Congress, and so it was signed by George W. Uh, George W. Bush. And, you know, it was a very limited bill in terms of what it did. Um, and, you know, I could talk at length about the limitations, but it was a moment where these two communities came together around an issue that until that time had defied regulation, even though it's kind of the worst thing you could imagine about, uh, you know, the functioning of a prison system. And that same coalition also passed the Second Chance Act, which um, was also signed by George W. Bush, uh, which ended up, that was 2007, and it ended up just creating more money for reentry programs. And you can see by the the label of the of the law, the Second Chance Act, there was a lot of um, uh, a kind of change in vocabulary among these constituencies as to how to talk about people in custody. For the late 20th century, it had been all about locking people up and throwing away the key and talking about people as congenitally violent and dangerous and, you know, the inability of people to change. During this period, uh, in the early part of the 21st century, you had... Uh, a recognition among some constituencies of the humanity of people in custody, or not the recognition, the acknowledgement of the humanity of people in custody and the recognition that everybody sort of deserves a second chance. Um, people can be redeemed. That was another way it was framed. Um, so I think that had some effect. The evangelical Christian um, you know, political contribution, I think, there was significant. The other um, kind of moment that I will flag, which I think actually had even more impact on the shift in the way, uh, maybe not the public was thinking, but the way state legislators and prison officials were thinking, and that was the financial crash of 2008. So it turns out that, you know, prisons are very expensive to run, and there are many poor states that have very, very large prison systems, like Louisiana, Oklahoma, Alabama. You know, these are states that have, if you were to look, if you were to make states countries, and you were to map um, internationally incarceration rates, those states would be at the very top and far out front of, you know, even America, ag or, you know, aggregated as a whole. So you had states that were very poor and spending a ton of money on incarceration. And that was true, not just of the, you know, the four I mentioned, but, you know, there were many states that were wrestling with huge budget deficits and then looking at their corrections budgets and saying, wow, we are sure spending a lot of money on, um, on prisons. Um, and so you ended up with a situation where um, legislators who had been vociferously tough on crime, let's say 10 or 15 years ago, all of a sudden realized that it just wasn't feasible for them to continue to spend the same kind of money on incarceration. Mm -hmm. And here I think something really fascinating happened because, you know, it it's not as if you could say for four decades, people who commit crimes are evil. People who have crimes deserve to be, you know, like I said before, have them locked up and thrown away the key and then expect that policies will all of a sudden change when you have a financial incentive to reduce the budget, the cost of the corrections budget. So what people ended up having to do, I, what I think happened was there was a kind of moment where the um, economic calculus caused or happened at the same time as a shift in the way people talked about things. So, you know, I've just I've just presented these two things as if they were separate, the changing, you know, some constituencies changing the way they were talking about people uh, caught up in the criminal system as opposed to the financial crisis. But I actually think that one pushed the other. And so, you know, so it, it, you had a climate where all of a sudden people started changing the way that they were talking about impacted people as people, as human beings who deserved a second chance, uh, who deserved at a minimum not to be brutalized when they go into custody. Uh, and I think I think it's those two things that um, made a change. And these are not the only things. I mean, I think also um, a growing grassroots movement around racial justice, uh, which didn't start with Black Lives Matter, but has sort of, you know, uh, been amplified by it. Uh, you know, you had key moments, I think, for people who were 
uh, inserting themselves into the national cultural dialogue at this moment. So you had Michelle Alexander in 2010 writing The New Jim Crow. You had Ava DuVernay's film 13th. Um, so these are things, you know, these are cultural moments where a lot of college kids are being exposed to these ideas. A lot of other people who hadn't really had their consciousness, you know, twig to these issues, all of a sudden were intersecting with people who were starting to think about these issues in a more robust and systematic way. Um, and so, you know, so now, you know, we arrive at a moment where um, even if the carceral state still has just almost as massive a footprint as it ever had, I mean, it's still, it's down from the stratospheric place that it was in the, let's say 2003, it's still pretty massive. The difference is the political um, environment. Yeah. And the willing, the willingness to think differently. Yeah. Well, you paint a really, you know, it's, it's interesting, this development that you note between, first of all, that things had to get so bad um, for, in terms of the human, um, in terms of the conditions in prisons, um, and also in terms of the amount of money that was being spent um, on both accounts, um, they, they were astronomical, right? Right. Um, in order to, in order for these two arguments, the human argument and the economic argument to begin gaining steam, it sounds like. Was there, and then, and then you talk about the parallel or the, um, the, also the grassroots movement. Um, and Yeah. You know what? I would just say there, there were some really interesting um, uh, kind of tensions or paradoxes in here. So on the one hand, you had, um, you know, a really, you know, conservative political movement kind of dominant in the late 20th century that was putatively against big government, Mm -hmm. against government spending, against um, federal interference, you know, governmental interference with individual liberties. And it was that same constituency that was endorsing a massive law enforcement footprint, a massive carceral footprint, massive expenditure on corrections, right? So there's a real puzzle there. And then on the other side, you know, the same people who are talking about deprivation of liberty or, or rather of humanity are willing to have people who are sentenced only to the deprivation of liberty actually be brutalized inside mm. by conditions that are, you know, where there's overcrowding, where there's a problem with prison rape, where there's prison violence. Um, and, you know, I think there are plenty of people who think about those paradoxes and what they what they see underneath is a story of kind of racial domination of um, abuse of power of all kinds so that the people who, who are having are being physically brutalized and not just having their liberty um, taken away from them are not people that the kind of political center thinks of the ma- political mainstream thinks of as like them and likewise there's this you know there's again this paradox about uh, uh, scope of government interference you know people who are advocating for a bigger carceral, footprint and for expanded power in this area don't imagine that it's they themselves who will be subject to that power and there again it's sort of an undercurrent of kind of racial you know a racial divide a class divide uh you know just a divide on social and economic power and capital and that's i think what explains a lot of the paradoxical dynamics in this space at this during that period Mm, like these these rules and regulation, these kinds of tough on crime laws work for those people, not right. for, you know, exactly. it's, it's an othering. It's an othering. Yes, yeah, exactly. Uh, exactly. Even when they are paradoxical with the values that, that people espouse on the other end. Right. So people don't, don't even see themselves in the category of people who might be subjected to governmental power in this, in this instance. Mm. Well, let's talk about that. I mean, we're before moving into the now um, talking about, race and uh and the reckoning that is going on today i mean what how would you define the law during all of these time i mean in 2011 <laughs> if you want to speak to the 2011 yeah. Supreme court decision well, and then now yeah, yeah where's so the I law will say, so yeah. until i would say in i mean you know it's a very complicated answer to the question if we're talking nationally um but if we just think about um california which in a lot of ways was in a lot of ways was typical. Um, if the question was where was the law in the late 20th century as the carc- American carceral footprint was expanding and the number of people taken into custody and kept there for extremely long times under extremely brutal conditions kept expanding, where was the law? And the short answer is it was inert. It was doing nothing. 
Um, and by the law here, I mean, typically we're talking about the federal courts who are um, primarily responsible in our constitutional scheme for enforcing constitutional protections. Uh, and so in this case, the most salient constitutional protection is the Eighth Amendment prohibition on cruel and unusual punishment, which is um, the provision of the Constitution that protects people against being brutalized in custody. Um, so you would think that as you had prison systems and jail systems too, although jails are governed by the Due Process 14th Amendment, Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment, uh, as opposed to the Eighth Amendment, but the standard is basically the same. The idea is the same that, um, you know, even if your liberty has been taken away from you, you have a protection against gratuitous physical harm. Um, so you would think that during the period I described in the late 20th century, you'd have the courts being very active in making sure that state actors are limited in the harm they can inflict on various fronts. You know, they should be having to provide you adequate medical care and adequate services and reasonably um, livable conditions and protection from physical violence and all those things. You expect the courts would have been very involved in making sure that these protections were provided. And the fact of the matter is that they weren't. And the reason why, or the, the, it's more, not so much the reason why, the mechanisms through which the courts managed to make it seem like they were taking constitutional rights seriously while actually doing absolutely nothing to protect them uh, is a phenomenon that I read about extensively in my work. I, I probably can't go into too much detail here, but that's pretty much what you were seeing across the board. Things actually, interestingly, in California took a slightly different turn than one might have predicted given the situation uh, in the period we're talking about. In 2006, as I mentioned, you know, Schwarzenegger had been in power for a bit and, um, and the prisons had, were so crowded and the violence was so considerable and there were fatalities uh, both uh, among incarcerated people and staff to the point that uh, uh, Schwarzenegger actually issued um, a, a state, what is it? he called it a, a prison overcrowding state of emergency. And it was a document, a official kind of document with a lot of whereases of the kind that you only would normally see in the case of natural disasters. But Schwarzenegger basically said, we, the short version was, our prisons are so overcrowded and there's so much violence that we have to act. And I'm hereby calling for a $15 billion bond issue for more prison building. And, you know, the political reason why he did this, why he issued the state of emergency was that, as I mentioned to you already, California had been pouring a ton of money into prison building. And even though it was clear that the um, building hadn't kept up with the rate of increase, and so the problem of overcrowding was continuing, the legislature was tapped out. And they had, Schwarzenegger had been trying to get more money for prison building, and he said no. Or they, the legislature said no. So um, Schwarzenegger was sort of trying to pull a political rabbit out of a hat to issue the state of emergency and get there to be a you know, publicly authorized bond issue. Uh, which failed. They said no, sorry, they said yeah. no because of financial reasons or because of uh, ideological reasons? Oh, why I did think, they, why was it? I mean, I think it's a complicated question, but I think at, at bottom, they just said, we spent too much money on corrections. This is ridiculous. I mean, during this period, California had been feeding its carceral system at the expense of its education system. And there's some data that shows that during the height of the prison building, you know, prisons are expensive to build and expensive to run. Um, and California prison officials, correctional officers are paid very well, partly thanks to the extremely powerful uh, influence of the California uh, Correctional and Peace Officers Association, the CCPOA, which is the basically the prison guards union for the state. And they are very effective and they had been um, successfully negotiating high salaries in their contracts for years. And so when you put together the prison building and the cost of the staff, you know, California is spending a huge amount of money on prisons and it had to come from somewhere. So they were taking it from the Cal State system, the UC system. And so there was a period when uh, in the 90s where there's some data that shows that um, every dollar that they took from that they added to the prison, you know, they were basically it was a one to one. So when they added money to the prison budget, the, the education budget dropped accordingly. And so I think there were legislators who were just like, we can't we can't keep doing this. There is no more money. Uh, and so you have to find another way. And you know, I was one of the people who weighed in during this period. A lot of us were saying, this is an opportunity to rethink our carceral strategy. Let's have an independent sentencing commission to sit down and say who really needs to be in custody and who doesn't. And we should get those people out who no longer need to be in custody for public safety reasons. We're already sentencing people disproportionate to any other, you know, to any other Western 
Pure Nation. Um, and we should actually try to figure out who we really need to incarcerate and then um, give people a chance to get going, you know, start, make something of their lives and free up some money in the state budget and have a healthier approach to crime and punishment. But that's, that's not what happened. Uh, Schwarzenegger tried a few things. Well, I mean, it just, there was, it was, there's not political will, I think is the short version. Um, you know, he tried a few things. He said, we're going to send people to private prisons. There were no private prisons in the state because the CCPOA was anti-privates. Uh, but he thought we'd send them to out of state and the, the court said no. Um, and, uh, they thought, uh, I'm trying to think of one of the other strategies. Um, there was, a, he tried for the bond issue that didn't work. Um, during this time, I should say, the the focus shifted away once Schwarzenegger it was clear that Schwarzenegger wasn't going to get his bond issue and he couldn't really solve the problem without some dramatic step. Um, prisoners, advocates in the state shifted their focus to the courts. And this is, you know, I said that California was unusual in this respect. Uh, and what happened in California was the situation had been so bad in California um, that the federal courts were moved to respond in a way that you were not seeing federal courts around the country responding to similar crises. Uh, there had already, there, there had been long standing, two long standing cases that had been going. One called uh, Plata, P L A T A, which was um, a class action on behalf of all California prisoners um, with medical needs in the, in the state, which is mostly everybody. And then there was Coleman, which started in 1990, so it had been going for you know a decade and a half by this point or more. And it, it was a class action on behalf of all uh, people with mental illness in the state, which is also a very large class. And those two cases had been moving through the system. And the advocates, their strategy, once they got a declaration of constitutional violation, and interestingly, so Coleman was filed in 1990. I think it took six, five or six or seven years before there was a finding of unconstitutional conditions. And then they started fighting about the remedy. When Plata, the medical care case, was filed in 2001, the state stipulated to the constitutional violation. They didn't even fight it, which just tells you how bad the situation was. Um, and then, you know, then they joined the Coleman battle for the remedy. And I should shout out here to um, Don Spector at the prison law office and Michael Bean and Ernie Galvan at Rosenbein, Galvan and Grunfeld. And these attorneys, you know, have been working on these cases for years at this point, representing their clients. Um, and around the time that Schwarzenegger issued his declaration, these lawyers went to their respective judges who were overseeing this litigation, and they asked for a three-judge panel to be struck under the Prison Litigation Reform Act. And what that means is, uh, it was a federal law that was passed um, uh, by Newt Gingrich's first Congress and signed into law by Clinton, and it did a lot of things to restrict the power of the federal courts to provide relief to people in custody who are challenging their prison conditions. Um, one of the things it did was it says no, and this is, by the way, really important for the COVID situation. The PLRA says no federal court shall issue a prisoner release order because of overcrowding uh, without first striking a three-judge panel. And only the three-judge panel has the authority to grant the order. And there are many restrictions on what has to be true before you can create a three-judge panel, and then restrictions on the circumstances under which that three-judge panel can issue um, a prisoner release order. So the PLRA was designed basically to shut down federal courts from issuing prison release orders, but because constitutional law is such that Congress is not allowed to deny all remedies for a constitutional violation, the, the drafters of the PLRA basically created a procedural regime that was so onerous that it was expected that no one would ever be able to get over it. Logistically impossible. And logistically impossible, yeah. And so it, what happened was there had been many court orders ordering prison releases during this period. I mean, which which tells you that I maybe I'm a little too harsh when I say the courts were inert uh, during this period. There were some bright spots that I could, you know, talk about at length, but the overall effect, especially starting in the 1980s, was a Supreme Court that was trying to tamp down any uh, lower court willingness to provide relief to prisoners. So there were definitely some many federal courts in which relief was granted, but it was always narrow and in the most extreme cases, I think because of the way the Supreme Court crafted uh, the doctrine. Um, but how can you, yeah. I mean, so it, you're painting a picture where then it become, it, it became virtually impossible. It sounds like for federal courts to really interfere with right. uh, 
you know, what, what was really a state of emergency, even by governor Schwarzenegger's own description. Right. How did that change? When did that change? I mean, the thing, the important thing to recognize is the difference between shutting the door totally on court ordered relief and leaving the door Mm -hmm. open a crack, but so small that you think the conditions would have to be so awful to get through that crack that it would never happen. And yet in California, conditions were so terrible that the plaintiffs were able to thread the needle. Mm. Mm. Is that what happened in 2011? That's what happened. Well, no, it it happened earlier. It happened in 2009. Uh The three judge panel had been struck and it had months of testimony and it issued a a court order that I think was 180 pages, the final court order. And that was the order that said under the circumstances, it went through systematically every procedural requirement of the PLRA and showed that it had been met with, you know, they took a lot of testimony. There was a lot of evidence about each requirement and they ordered the California Department of Corrections to reduce the density of its prisons from 200% capacity to 137.5% capacity. And they said to the state, figure it out. If you want to build more prisons, feel free. Uh, find some other way. You just have to make sure that the prisons are less crowded. And, um, and what happened in 2011 was uh, by this time it was Jerry Brown and as governor, and he appealed the three-judge panel order to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court, in a 5-4 opinion authored by Justice Kennedy, over the dissents of the four, at the time, four conservative justices, um, upheld the order. Mm -hmm. Uh, And his opinion was likewise very systematic. He went through each one and looked at the... It was was styled, it wasn't a constitutional review, it was styled as a question of statutory implementation. You know, was the... Did the the three-judge panel appropriately... Uh, apply, comply with the statute, you know, show that the parties that comply with the statute and Kennedy's answer in each case was yes. Mm, Okay. Well, so then in brief, maybe you can tell us about what, what happened next in the story, you know, what, there was a shift, this idea of realignment um, from the state to the counties. Can you speak to that a little bit? And then I want to move into what's going on today. Yes. So I'll just say that, as I said to you, the, the, court order said the state could figure out any way they want to reduce the density of the population rather than striking a commission to think again about sentencing or trying to release people. Jerry Brown decided to implement something he called realignment, which was basically to shift a good percentage of the state's prisoner population back to the counties. So he threw it back to the county mm. jail. So it was just a reshuffling essentially of the, it was a reshuffling. Yeah. For complicated reasons, it did overall lead to a reduction, you know, appreciable reduction in the state's prisoner population because jails have more authority than the prison does to reduce their populations. Uh, but it's it still meant that there, you know, there's um, a huge number of people in the California prisons and jails that many of us think had no need to be there. And now under different authorities, it sounds like under correct the sheriffs, right? Of- and and actually, to be honest, under worse conditions because as bad as the prison is, jails are worse on the whole. People will tell you who have done time in both. Mm-hmm. Wow. So would you say that that would lead us to where we are today in terms of setting the stage? Is there anything that, that we need to know before talking about what's going on today? Yeah. Well, I mean, here's what I would just say. I would just say that when we leave the story in you know, re- post-2011 Supreme Court order and realignment, you end up with conditions in both the jails and the prisons that continue to be well over capacity, so still overcrowded, still um, in many cases decrepit physical plants with um, insufficient means to, you know, people people still um, often not getting the basics that they need, in this case, for personal hygiene and to maintain a clean environment. People lack in the prisons basic uh, healthcare. There's almost no preventative healthcare, for example, which means that there is a disproportionate number of people in custody with many uh, chronic health conditions that we now know are you know, comorbidities with COVID. Um, and you also have, during this period, you know, a ref- the, the refusal to rethink sentencing approaches for people who are doing long periods of time has meant a growing number of elderly people in the prison system. And it's not just people who are 80. I mean, in prison, because prison is so hard on you physically, a 55-year-old in prison is like a 70-year-old in, in the free world. So you have, just to sum up, even before COVID, overcrowding, inadequate hygiene, uh, with an aging population at high risk of, um, you know, or with, with serious uh, medical complications. 
Mm-hmm. And that's where, and that is where we find ourselves today and how it's almost a perfect storm. Um, you enter COVID. I mean, um, right. Right. A- I wouldn't say it's almost a perfect storm. I would say it, it is, is a perfect storm. Yeah. I mean, what I've been saying uh, is that, you know, public health people who focus on prisons have been saying for years that we are one pandemic away from a catastrophe in the prisons. And now we have COVID. So tell me, so let's, let's talk about now. Let's talk about today. I mean, we are in a moment of, we are in that pandemic. um, And we are also simultaneously in a moment of racial reckoning um, that is a, an outgrowth of, of movements that have been going on for a very long time and has a unique um, tenor to it and potential for change. And so, given, you know, given that perfect storm plus that maybe opportunity or, or unique moment, what is going on in the prisons and what is, what is the conversation um, among policymakers and how is it the same or different as before? Well, let me just say as a kind of top line point, I think it's really important to try to keep the um, recognition of the connection between the Black Lives Matter uh, movement and call for change, uh, keep the connection between that and the reality on the ground in the prisons and jails in this country. Because, um, you know, it's very understandable that a lot of the protest has been focused on law enforcement and, you know, just on the streets um, and the way police interact with people of color. Um, but it's also important to remember that people who are arrested by the police often end up in jail or prison where the same sets of dynamics, racial dynamics, power dynamics, um, take hold. And so for those who care about racial justice and the reduction in the abuse of power by law enforcement officers, they should be calling as much for change in the prisons as on the streets with law enforcement. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of what I, I mentioned that as a top line point, because I think it, that connection has unfortunately not gotten a lot of, um, you know, not a lot of light has been shone on that connection during the last period since the protest started. Although there's some pockets of BLM that I think are really doing great work connecting, trying to connect the two. So I would just like to, you know, reinforce that connection. Um, on the side of COVID, um, you know, what we're seeing in the prisons is what many of us predicted we would be seeing as soon as the pandemic hit, which is disproportionate infection rates, uh, disproportionate death rates, uh, insufficient public policy response, uh, a refusal by most federal courts to intervene. So a lot of the things that I mentioned earlier uh, have come back in force, including very much the provision of the PLRA dealing with the onerous requirements for release orders. So what's been happening is, you know, I mentioned that there are many requirements that the PLRA imposes in order to create a three-judge panel and to have that three-judge panel order releases. And what's happened is, you know, at the beginning, many advocates went around to the, you know, went to the local federal courts on behalf of their clients in the local prisons and jails and said, we need to get these people out. Look at all the high-risk people in custody. We know that COVID is going to spread. It's tailor-made. Prison conditions are tailor-made for the spread of the virus, for all the reasons I've already outlined. Uh, and this is a constitutional crisis. The Eighth Amendment says uh, prison people in custody have a constitutional right to protection against known uh, risks of serious harm. This is a known risk of serious harm. Therefore, state officials have a constitutional obligation to act. And we also know that really there is no way to protect people from COVID inside. And so the r- only real way to protect, especially the people who are at highest risk, is to reduce the number of people in custody sufficient to allow social distancing for the people who remain. That's what the advocates have been saying, and I fully support that um, way of seeing the matter. Uh, But what you had were courts saying, you have to, if you want any federal court to issue a prisoner release order in response to COVID, you have to comply with the PLRA, which require that there has been a prior court order entered for less intrusive relief, and that that relief has proved un- ineffective. And then they said, look, once you've done that, feel free to apply for that relief. And then once you've taken enough time to show that it was ineffective, then you could feel free to apply for a three-judge panel or make a motion for a three-judge panel. And then that three-judge panel can see if all the other requirements are met. And then maybe at that point you get a relief. And, you so know, again, making it logistically impossible. Yeah. I mean, and not, yeah, if not impossible, then virtually impossible. And there are a number of things to say about this. One is, you know, this is an emergency. 
And as you can already tell, the PLRA was not designed for fast responses. The PLRA was designed to make it onerous for federal courts to order relief and for it to take a lot of time and there to be a lot of procedural steps. And we're in a state of emergency right now. You know, if you're a high risk person uh, in a dormitory, in a dormitory setting in a prison where you're sharing a dorm with 100 men and you're sleeping in a triple bunk with sharing five toilets and five sinks and five showers with the other men in the unit. Um, and, you know, there's no way of social distancing because you're practically sleeping inches from somebody's face. Uh, you don't you don't have time for all of the court proceedings to take place. You're going to you're going to um, develop complications and possibly die. And in fact, we know that, um, you know, our data has shown uh, that people uh, once you adjust for age, you know, once you compare uh, the people in prison, um, you adjust for the age difference because there are younger people in prison than there are in the society as a whole. So the idea of an age adjustment is if the people in prison ha were the same age distribution as people in the free world, the, uh, the, they'd be dying at three times the rate. Um, it's already an elevated risk just on the basis of the raw numbers. But what it basically says is people have a higher risk of dying younger in prison than they do in the general population. And so we know these things to be true. And yet the courts are responding as if we have all the time in the world. And and that's just the cases where there's some evidence that there's willingness to take some steps. I mean, what you also are seeing is, in many cases, advocates recognizing that the release remedy is likely unavailable to them. And we're looking to get more minimal interventions like soap distribution or quarantining or cohorting or other kinds of social distancing. And courts are even rejecting those petitions, both for the most part. And when they're granted, they are stayed by higher courts. And in fact, just the other day, there was a um, there was a the Supreme Court issued an order not basically denying cert um, on a case that was challenging the stay of a preliminary injunction. And with that in English, what it means is the trial court issued an order telling Orange County sheriffs that they had to respond immediately to implement um, some changes and conditions on the ground to try to reduce the spread of COVID. Instead of complying, Orange County sheriff went to the Ninth Circuit and said, I shouldn't have to do this uh, at this moment. And the Ninth Circuit uh, agreed and the Supreme Court uh, upheld that order over a very vociferous dissent by Justice Sotomayor, who detailed all kinds of facts that ought to have led to a different result, including the fact that there was good evidence that the Orange County Sheriff had misled the court about what they had actually been doing on the ground. So you have a case where there's actually evidence of bad faith and, you know, misrepresentation in a court of law. And the Supreme Court is is basically giving its imprimatur to that kind of behavior. Um, and they're doing it, I think, because there has been, a, I mean, it's a, not because, but it's a reflection of the way the federal courts have basically circled the wagons. And um, notwithstanding a kind of um, impression of judicial review, there has been almost no uh, outcome that has changed the experience, you know, the situation on the ground, lessened the risk for people in custody. I sometimes say that what you get in the prison law context is judicial process that has the aesthetic of legal argument without the integrity of a legal argument. It looks and acts like legal, like constitutional review, but when you really unpack it, there's no meaningful effort to find, um, you know, to identify constitutional violations and remedy them. That's what we have. Is this the same? Is this the same? Um inertness of of the yes. 90s is this an exactly. of the early 2000s and you know what's interesting is there was moment um led largely i think by justice kennedy in the supreme court uh in the we started getting some opinions in the early 2000s uh right up until plata and even beyond uh as long as kennedy was in on the court because kennedy had you know sometime around the late uh, aughts, he developed sort of awareness about prison conditions. He gave a speech to the American Bar Association about the need for serious prison reform, and that seemed to be reflected in a lot of his opinions. Um, so there was a moment when it started to feel like the imperative of judicial deference to prison officials uh, and the readiness of you know federal courts to side with prison officials against prisoners. It looked like that was starting to abate, and what we are seeing now with COVID is it's it's if it's if it had abated at all, it's back in full force and even more so because you have this urgent situation. You have a clear, as far as I'm concerned, constitutional violation and you have a total unwillingness of the courts to do anything about it. And in fact, what you're actually seeing is and this was something that advocates were always worried about. 
because the law, because the situation is so clear in terms of the constitutional violation on the standards as they already existed, what you are seeing is courts um, reinterpreting the standards to make them harder for advocates to overcome, for prisoners to overcome, in order to make the case that they aren't being, that they're not being, that they are not being violated. So we're going to come out of this with even narrower constitutional protections for people in custody than we had going in. Mm. That's a, you know, it's, that's a bleak picture. Um, and it's one that seems in line with the history that we just went over. Um, it just seems like a continuation of more of the same in terms of the legal, um, the legal, uh, jumping and, and, and maneuvering in order to make it harder to, to provide these constitutional protections as well as in it, maybe, um, the, um, the double think that you've, that you referenced about race and racism and the fact that, um, this paradox that you note that you named earlier. Such a nice point. Such a nice point. I think that's exactly right. I actually think, you know, if you, if you parse some of the judicial opinions of some of the more conservative justices, you see signs that the same kind of normative hostility that motivated tough on crime and that seems to motivate police violence against African-Americans and other, you know, disenfranchised groups like the mentally ill, um, you know, the same normative hostility that seems to explain that kind of outsized violence is also visible in some of the language, even that comes into the Supreme Court opinions. And it suggests that there is, um, that there is a kind of uh, spiritual normative um, alliance uh, among these various powerful institutions, including the courts. And, you know, the, the role of the federal courts is supposed to be to stand between the citizens and the state to protect the people's constitutional rights from abuses of power by state officials. Because remember, like, state officials don't have their power because they're sovereign. They're not, they're not kings. They have their power only because the state can't function unless we give some individual people power. And that power should be, should come with a lot of caveats and limits. Um, but because it's, I think it's the nature of people, it's the nature of power that people forget why they have it and the limits they're supposed to have on it. And so the idea of constitutional review is supposed to be that an impartial court looks at the way the state officials exercise the quite, you know, considerable power that they've been given and make sure that it's, that they exercise their power consistently with constitutional uh, imperatives. But instead, in this context, and I think in other contexts too, other scholars of other areas of civil rights law would tell you the same, but in this case, I can tell you it's extreme. Instead of standing sort of against abuse of power to make sure that people's rights are being protected, it feels very much like the court has repositioned itself to stand next to the state officials and to kind of take every opportunity to be sympathetic to, to side with, to believe prison officials. In the example of Orange County, even when there's evidence that they have lied to the courts, rather than the court saying this actually is evidence of bad faith that makes us question your commitment to your constitutional obligation to make sure the people in your custody are safe, the court says no problem. And that doesn't sound like a court that is actually taking its obligation, its constitutional obligation seriously. So as we move um, toward the end of this episode, um, you know, we've spoken on, in, on other podcast episodes about um, this moment that we're in of abolition. Um, this, it's a moment uh, where it seems like uh, on, a, on a very massive scale, there is a willingness or at least an opportunity to rethink and reimagine systems that have long been in place. Um, and particularly those systems that are racist and, um, and racialized in nature. Yeah. Um, what do you, what is your hope? Um, can you say, what is your hope for the future and what can you learn from the past in this particular moment? Yeah. I think that what we have learned from the past is that the um, hostility approach, the us versus them approach, the lock them up and throw away a key approach is is a failed approach. I mean, it does all kinds of damage to society as a whole, to individual people, to families, to communities. It just is toxic in society. And it actually recasts the whole political orientation of the political culture around a kind of penal um, posture toward every problem. I mean, it's as if, you know, every problem, if you, if you were to look at legislative initiatives, it's as if there's no problem that can't be solved with another criminal prohibition. 
and and more and more prison time. And that actually is a, an unhealthy way for a society to run. So what I hope that we will that w- what will come out of this is a recognition that um, state power in these contexts is especially likely to be abused, and that people who get caught up in the carceral system end up being harmed far more than anybody could possibly justify, um, uh, you know, to no social good without any recognition that um, these are human beings who have the capacity to grow and change and who are somebody's, you know, spouse and parent and child and niece and, you know, grandparent. Um, and that society would be much healthier if we actually put our heads together to figure out how to respond to people who have done wrong in ways that aren't just, you know, endlessly toxic for the society. And to put that more in, give you more specifics, I think we need to dramatically scale back our carceral footprint and find other ways to support people who are, um, you know, who, who do wrong. And, um, you know, some of that should be in, in the terms of reckoning. I think there's a really healthy and robust um, movement around restorative justice, which is a way to try to think about how to, how to mend rifts that come when people do wrong to their fellow citizens in ways that aren't endlessly toxic. So I think we should be really focusing on those strategies while I think recognizing that as, as, as effective as a decarceral strategy might be, there will remain some population in custody. And my focus tends to be on how we should treat even those people who we think are not safe to release into society. Um, you know, and I think that's one piece of it that tends to get overlooked in a lot of conversations about mass incarceration, reduction of mass incarceration and prison reform. And I would say that on that particular point, I have a maybe a vain hope, but I have some hope that the attention that is currently being given to prison conditions around COVID may um, have a long tail. And by that, I mean that until February of this year, my sense was most people didn't give a thought to the conditions of prison. And people who were trying to make change were only thinking about how to get people out and not how we treat the people who remain. And during this COVID period, for the first time, there's a tension on the nitty gritty life experience of the people who are in custody and how awful it is and what it means on a day-to-day, in a day-to-day way. And I'm hoping that that recognition will move people to the idea that even if you're inside, you should still be treated humanely and in ways that are not traumatizing and that allow you to change and grow and develop as a person, even if you have to sacrifice your liberty because of whatever decision society has made. Absolutely. Well, I think that's um, with that hope and with that almost call to action um, and call to awakeness. um, I think that's a great place to, to close. Um, Thank you so much, uh, Professor Sharon Dolovich uh, for joining us today. Yeah, it's been my pleasure. Then and Now is a production of the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy with support from the UCLA History Department. It can be found wherever you listen to your podcasts and wanted to give a special thank you to our director, Professor David Myers, and our guest today, Professor Sharon Dolovich, for joining us. Let us know your thoughts on this or other episodes of Then and Now by emailing us at luskincenter, L-U-S-K-I-N, center, at history.ucla.edu. Thank you so much and see you next time. Thank you for joining us this week on Then and Now. Then and Now is brought to you by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy, where we study change to make change. For more on our work, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at our handle, at Luskin History. Our show is produced by Maya Ferdman and David Myers, with original music by Daniel Reichman. Special thanks to the UCLA History Department for its support, and thanks to you for listening.